Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. I am Matt Zemek with Sake Bali, and we are in that in-between time, smack dab in the middle between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. This is Halle, Queens, uh, Birmingham week on the two tours. So right in the middle, you know, you might remember that five years ago, there were only two weeks between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. What a headache that was for not just for players, but also for bloggers and podcasters who barely had any downtime. Thank goodness for this three-week break, which actually enables us to all in the tennis community take a breath and regather. So um, what we're going to tackle this week is the particular story being written on the ATP tour. And, and I did write about it briefly at tennisaccent.com uh, on Sunday, but we're going to try and unpack this a little bit. Uh, the Stuttgart ATP 250 final on Sunday was won by Matteo Berrettini over Felix Auger Aliassim in a very close, high quality final. Uh, Auger Aliassim, frankly, should have won the second set, but he was hooked on a lines call. And uh, Berrettini was able to take advantage of that break and win the second set tiebreaker to take the match in straights. But um, as I briefly noted, and we're going to talk more about these two players, but uh, Berrettini and Auger Aliassime are both in the top 15 of the ATP race to London. And they're in the they're in the top 15, despite the fact that between the two, they have won exactly one major tournament match this year. Berrettini, uh, a major tournament match to this point. Uh, you know, he pulled out of uh, Roland Garros before it began. He didn't finish his U.S. Open match last uh, last August against Denis Shapovalov. Uh, so despite the very barren major tournament match win counts, they are both heavily in the race to London, and we're going to talk about how unusual that is and also, you know, what we can realistically expect from FAA and Mateo uh, in the second half of the tennis season. So, uh, Sakib, I, I know that uh, you wanted to talk about uh, Berrettini. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that on the heels of Ash Barty winning Roland Garros on clay with a slice that we've seen uh, Berrettini then use his slice uh, to win on grass, but you know, he didn't carry much of any of a grass portfolio into Stuttgart. So what what is your overall reaction to his Stuttgart title? Uh, it's funny, isn't it, right? Uh, we were talking not too long ago about Joe Conta, you know, dusting off her lack of clay credentials and uh, making such an impressive run in the clay season. And now we have Matteo Berrettini, who has a great serve. It's easy to say now, actually, because the week he had in Stuttgart, uh, he dispatched some very formidable opponents in uh Kyrgios, Hachinov, and then uh, uh, Jan-Leonard Struff, who's been on fire himself. And then he got Felix Ogialisim in the final. And I believe he didn't drop serve. And I was just checking the stats when I prepared for this podcast. Uh, the guy was holding his second serve close to, I think, 60% or more throughout the entire week. And I think, Matt, that's a pretty impressive number. And uh, again, uh, you do associate all clay court players, uh, all Italian players, especially on the men's side, have you know they have learned the craft on clay like Fabio Fonini and then uh, even uh, Andrea Seppi. So uh, most players are all court players because grass you can play from baseline. But this is pretty impressive that he's won two titles this year. Uh, he won on clay earlier this year and then uh, he wins 
uh, across court tournament. But you're right. Uh, he's only had one match win this year. That's against Casper Ruud in a major. And his losses have come against Pablo Cuevas and Ron Garros. And then Stefano Tsitsipas in the first round in Australia. So those were not bad draws. But at the same time, the guy is definitely, uh, you know, his name's being heard. Uh, he's announced himself in the grass conversation. He's probably one of those tricky third-round opponents. Nobody wants to play if he serves anything like he did in Stuttgart. So, yeah, I mean, that's something... That's not the norm in the Federer Nadal era where, or Djokovic era where most of the points come through majors of the top players, but this is one way of doing and boosting your ranks by doing really well on the tour. And the tour is, at least I maintain, uh, it's a 46-45 week uh, calendar and not everybody is going to get all the points from the big ones. So I know you have spoken about this. So what stands out for you for Berrettini before you start talking about Felix? Well, a, cu- a couple things. One is that, you know, this is kind of the Fabio Fanini playbook to a certain extent that Fanini uh, would feast on 250s and he would put himself in position to potentially make a run for London. But, you know, Fanini eventually did, you know, Fanini was on the doorstep of London uh, at the end of July, very beginning of August last year. And he he did need to make a run at a Masters 1000. He needed to go deep uh, at, at the Masters level, and, and he wasn't able to do that. You know, he uh, he got worn down in the second half of that season. Uh, so you, one would think initially that both Berrettini and Felix uh, are going to have to make at least a, another Masters semifinal or two and make uh, at least a fourth round. Uh, if not a quarterfinal at a major, if they're going to actually get to London. But with that having been said, we have to remind ourselves that the ATP tour from players six through 30, roughly, uh, you know, after you get past the top five and then you go, you know, through the rest of the top 30, basically through the number of players seated at a Grand Slam tournament. Um, when you get through that, those uh, 25, 28 players or so, there's just been so much stagnation on tour, so many players failing to gain traction. And, uh, you know, Juan Martin Del Potro, who made the U.S. Open final last year, so he's going to be defending points in the second half of this season. Uh, you know, you're going to have a few other guys also carrying some large point burdens. I mean, John Isner at Wimbledon. Uh, if he's even able to play, uh, that's one example. And then, of course, you have Kevin Anderson defending his finalist points at Wimbledon. He's just coming back from a long injury layoff. You know, if he is rusty, which is entirely possible, if not probable, and he sheds 800 points, you know, we could see a situation where, you know, even if Felix and Berrettini don't light it up in the second half of the season, if they can still pick off 250s and 500s, uh, you know, they could still be very, very close to the cut line for Wimbledon when we get into October. Yes, they, they probably will need to make a Masters semi, if not a Masters final, and they'll, and they'll need to make a fourth round at a major. But given the rest of what we're seeing on the ATP Tour, it's not a foregone conclusion that uh, Felix and Berrettini can can rack up the results they've had, you know, winning winning two fifties or making finals at two fifties and five hundreds, but not doing anything at the majors, 
uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that they can continue to do these to post these results and yet they're going to fall out of contention. They might be able to continue with this pattern of results, you know, really good at the 250s and 500s, not so much at the Masters and weak at the majors. They could still be in it if Anderson, Delpo, uh, and the other players that we've mentioned, you know, shed six, seven, eight hundred points uh, at the bigger tournaments with all, with all, everything that they're defending. So, uh, you know, that that is just the complicated and in many ways contradictory world uh, of the ATP that we face. Um, it, it, it's just not a very linear world once you get past the top four uh Really, the top four. You could also say Zverev in the top five, but really, Zverev is kind of an enigma uh, in his own right this season. So it, it really is a mysterious place. No, you're right. I mean, we'll skip Zverev, especially I will, because we've spoken about him for since Darren Cahill came in the podcast, and maybe even before. So I'll <laughs> give the guy a pass this time. But I think you are onto something very interesting here. But uh, just because you know, I'm student of the '90s, and you know, you know, like yourself, we recall a lot of those. Uh, moments from the men's game and I think Thomas Muster is a classic example I mean as great a clay court player he was he only made one French final he won it and I don't think he ever made a semi and he was making his living I think 41 or 42 of his 44 titles have come on clay and he was just winning all year long and he was top 10 I think for more than a few years so I think you're right it's just uh, the different era we live in uh, the big four era and even uh, guys like Stan Wawrinka who are a better best of five players you know some guys just show up at the majors and you know steal the limelight doing it the hard way but uh, who's to say like you know a Manorino who just won last week and uh, he probably is already in the Hall of Fame Newport field because he was a grass court player and a lot of these guys come there for points uh, heading to United States and Fonini and some of the other Europeans they rather play the 250 clay court events. Uh, so let me ask you something else based on what you said on the current scenario. So would you rather have a Berrettini or a Felix who haven't won a match in a major, a combined maybe one match, uh, making that road uh, to London a possibility? Or would you like a Luca Pui, you know, uh, won five matches at a major and then probably hasn't won four matches all year long? So which path is, I know one is a greener path and, you know, a path that draws more limelight and best of five is majors. But uh, which one would you choose? I know, uh, not as, as, as a choice, but uh, which one do you give more weightage in terms of the overall year? Uh, you know, if, 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 if the vast majority of your points uh, in the race to London or just in a season in general come from one event, you know, that, that reinforces the idea that that tournament was an aberration. And not trying to take anything away from Pui's run because he played some really, really quality tennis uh, in Melbourne. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, if I had to make a preference for which path I'd want to get to London or at least to be in contention for London in October, I'd rather be winning smaller tournaments or going deep in smaller tournaments on a consistent basis because that means that my game is not only consistent. But to use a particular turn of phrase, it would show that my game travels, meaning that my game can carry over from one surface and one set of conditions to another. That's a really good sign of having a durable, well-rounded game. You know, Felix in particular, even more than Berrettini, Felix had made uh, the Masters semi in Miami. Uh, you know, he had his stellar uh, South American clay swing uh, in, in Rio. 
And then he also has now made a final on grass. So, you know, that that versatility and that consistency um, that augurs well for Alger Ali Asim. So being able to have your game translate to clay and hardcore and grass all in the same season, uh, you know, that is a very encouraging trajectory and something which shows a robust quality to one's game, whereas Pui is living in, in, in purely in terms of the race, the race points uh, on his uh, showing in Melbourne. So I, so I would personally prefer FAA's uh, flight plan uh, to uh, Pui's. All right, so I know uh, sometime I deviate and I'm going to further deviate, and this is, I think, a conversation I'm enjoying, and I want to hear more of your views. And this, again, uh, whoever, whoever's listening, we do plan some of this, but a lot of this is just on the go, and Matt just, you know, keeps, you know, hitting them away. So, Matt, I don't know if you remember, and maybe I'm hallucinating. Wasn't there a time, like, I think in the late 90s or early 2000s, that if you won a major, you would qualify for the Masters of the year-end? Because I remember in 2008, when Marat Safin won the Australian Open, his ranking was slipping. And I, re- I clearly remember, because I followed the guy very keenly, I clearly remember reading somewhere that if he, if, if he didn't have knee surgery, he would have qualified... Uh, if, even if he was ranked in the top 13 or 15, he would have qualified. Uh, do you remember that rule or is it just I'm maybe uh, confusing something? And then there's a question in there. Would you like that rule if someone wins a major and is pretty much a no-show because winning major is not easy? So I know it's like a two-tier question. Uh, would you fancy that rule? Okay, you won a major and uh, you get a free pass to London because it's a major. Uh, yeah. I don't know what the deeper history of that is going back 15, 20, 25 years, but I know that with uh, Marin Cilic uh, winning the U.S. Open in 2014, I believe that rule came up, and I do believe that that rule is in place, that as long as you meet a relatively modest rankings threshold, I, I think it's top 20, I'm not absolutely sure, but I think that if you do win a major and your ranking is reasonable, that you do get in. Uh, I, so I think we're living under those uh, circumstances right now. And I think that's a good role because it, it honors the weight and the enormity, the enormity of a major championship, which I think is entirely appropriate. Uh, so I think we covered uh, very interesting, I think, based on your article. And uh, this is an interesting scenario. And hopefully whoever listens can weigh in because uh, what these guys are doing is uh, – not the normal way of building the rank, at least what the superstars have done, but then a lot of players make their living at the 250. So any word on Manorino? Keep, you know, re- resurrecting his name in the conversation. I mean, this guy is, you know, not your typical French guy, doesn't uh, have too much flair, but I've seen him in, on, you know, I've seen him at majors live, and uh, he's been just, you know, destroyed by Djokovic and Raonic. Uh, you know, those are my memories, but, you know, this guy couple of years ago, I think he made a run again to a top 20, if I'm not mistaken. And now he's again, uh, he's, he's, he's won a title. I mean, you, you have to give him kudos, no matter if it's a 250, because there are guys like Julian Benetou and, and so many others that haven't won a title. So your thoughts on uh, Adrian Manorino? Well, you know, he, uh, he, if you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that in the last two Wimbledons, uh, he has made the round of 16, the fourth round. He's he's played on Manic Monday. And, well, actually, so in, in 2017, he should have played on Manic Monday, but he didn't because of the rain. And Wimbledon did not uh, reschedule or re- reassign his match to center court under the lights against Djokovic. 
but he made the round of 16 each of the last two years at Wimbledon, lost to Djokovic in 2017, lost to Federer uh, in 2018. And, you know, he, he has, he is one of those players. He hasn't had a, a Stan Wawrinka like ascendancy, but he definitely fits the, the larger general pattern of a player who struggled with his game, struggled to find the sweet spot in terms of playing really consistent high level tennis until he got into his very late twenties. Uh, you know, older has been better for Adrian Manorino. And for him to finally break through, you know, that has to be a very, very satisfying taste. And it's a reminder that, you know, while we talk about Wimbledon, we talk about the majors and we talk about the race to London and needing to do well at the Masters 1000s. You know, there are plenty of ways to succeed in tennis. There are plenty of levels or thresholds at which one can forge immense personal satisfaction. So, you know, while this didn't make make, uh, you know, huge Global headlines, a 250 on grass right after Roland Garros. It means the world to Adrian Manorino to be able to claim that first tile because we all know that Julien Beneteau and and others in his position, you know, would have given a lot just to have this one championship. And Adrian Manorino has managed to track it down. Yeah, very well said. And then uh, by the time this podcast is released tomorrow, he. Uh, would have I think he would be playing or they would have completed his match I mean he's playing against Nick Kyrgios and that's something always intriguing Uh, so any other players I know uh, we did a segment uh, with the Roland Garros preview followed uh, the Steve Steve Flink episode anyone else who you want to talk about uh, before we do our Wimbledon uh, special next week Uh, is is Marin Cilic interest to you I mean uh, are you Still on the fence with this form. Kevin Anderson came back today. I don't know if you got to see any of his match. Stan Wawrinka is working with Danny Velberu. Any any stories that intrigue you uh, leading up to Wimbledon besides the big guns? Well, you know, with with any player who's been going through a huge slump as Chilich has or has had a, a long layoff as Anderson has, you know, I really don't want to say too much. I don't think it's there's really a lot to be said right now because those players are just total mysteries and they have to work through whatever's going on. And I think just the brief thing to note with Chilich and, and Anderson is that, you know, they need soft week one draws. They need help in the, in the first week of the draw. If they can get a soft draw and they can work through week one, they can get to manic Monday, you know, then perhaps their ceiling of potential and possibility could be a lot higher, but you know, we don't, we won't know until, until the draw comes out, uh, in terms of an interesting story beyond the big guns, I think you have to look at Nicolas Mahou. Uh, age 37, you know, the, the, the 37-year-old in tennis who gets most of the hype and the publicity, of course, is Roger Federer. But Nico Mahou uh, continues to deliver the goods. He knocked out Francis Tiafo uh, early in uh, Queen's Club. You know, he just continues to play some of the finest tennis of his career in this autumnal stage. And it's impressive that, you know, he, he made, uh, the third round, uh, at Roland Garros almost earned a, a date with Federer in the fourth round, uh, on, you know, on clay, uh, not, not his favorite surface. And, you know, you, so you might've thought, well, okay, he's due for a letdown as we move to grass. Nope. You know, he beats a really solid player and moreover, a player Tiafo who, you know, has had a marvelous season uh, and has achieved several very notable 
uh, results. Um, so it's not as though Mahu had a tomato can draw anything like that. You know, he he went from clay to grass. His first match was against was against a really solid opponent, and he prevailed. So that's a very inspiring story. It's a lot like a forty year old Ivo Karlovich, you know, winning a match at 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 a major this year. You know, we're, we're seeing some remarkable. Uh, under the radar stories, which, you know, they're not going to get the same headlines as what happens at the final weekend of a major tournament. But but these stories deserve a lot uh, of appreciation from the global tennis community. Uh, Mahu uh, actually defeated Nico Jerry uh, of Chile, uh, someone that you know I know that you admire a lot and have been watching. Uh, he defeated Jerry in the qualifiers before beating Tiafo. Uh, in the first round. So, you know, Mahu is just collecting scalps left and right. And it's just an amazing thing to see. No, you're right. I think I was, uh, I remember he'd lost a final to Roddick at, uh, at Queens and uh, he's won the Hertogenbosch title, I think three times and maybe has also won Newport. So yeah, he's just like a classic grass court exponent, you know, he's just a uh, He's the one who's, you know, keeping the craft alive. Of course, we talk about Federer and then a lot has been uh, said about Misha Zverev in the past, uh, in the recent past. And then Nico Mahu is another guy. And I, I I give him a very good chance, not an outside chance, to win his next match at Queen's as well. No matter who comes out of the Wawrinka-Dan Evans game, I think Mahu can catch any of those guys in the best of three in the early rounds. Uh, I, I give him full marks there. I think, yeah, kudos for him to, you know, keep going and, and still being very relevant in, in this day and age. And uh, there's another guy, I mean, we've spoken about him and uh, since we, you know, are wrapping up this conversation. Daniel Medvedev, what are your expectations? I know you've written about him this year. Uh, he has a very good serve and uh, he made some improvements in clay, even though then he started losing a lot of matches. Uh, what, what are your grass court projections for this guy? Is he going to be in some conversation for you or are you going to hold on that? Uh, what, what are your early impressions on grass? Well, you know, I can just use my classic fallback answer, you know, wait for the draw in terms of handicapping uh, his situation at Wimbledon. But I could, of course, apply that to any player. Medvedev is just an utter mystery. And I've written as much that he is a mysterious player because one thing that has elicited a lot of sharply contrasting reactions in the tennis community is this notion that he is Jules Simon 2.0. Now, that's not my term. That is a term of a French coach, you know, who has observed him up close. Uh, he has been called Jules Simon 2.0 by people in the tennis industry, people who have seen him practice, people who have seen how he goes about his business. And when you mention Medvedev being viewed by some as Jalou 2.0, a lot of people will go, what? You know, they're, they're, there's not even the slightest uh, sense of a comparison. Uh, so it, it, it divides a lot of people. I mean, some people will see it, some people won't. And I think that that little anecdote uh, is emblematic of how hard it is to pin down Medvedev and what makes him tick and what really is his best surface and what really is best for his game. Um, you know, you can, you can define his game and, and approach his game from different angles. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, what he's, what is he going to bring to grass? 
you know, if he if he was to flame out early at Wimbledon, it wouldn't seem like too much of a shock. And if he made it to the quarterfinals, it wouldn't seem like too much of a shock either. Because if you remember, Zakib, when we got through the uh, hard court swing in March, the sunshine swing of Indian Wells in Miami, the conventional wisdom in most, it wasn't a u- unanimous feeling, but in most of the tennis world, it was generally thought that okay, Clay's coming up, Medvedev's going to struggle. So what does he do in Monte Carlo? He beats Novak Djokovic. So (laughs) it's just whenever you think you have Daniil Medvedev figured out, he veers in a different direction uh, relative to what you were expecting. And so expecting the unexpected has become, at least for me, the norm with Medvedev. So if I expect him to zig at Wimbledon, he might zag. And, uh, you know, until... Until I see more of him and until uh, I really I watch him go through the entirety of this 2019 season, I'm going to refrain from saying anything in terms of the long term uh, with Daniel Medvedev. He, he is just a mystery. And, you know, in the in the sports commentary business, it is easy to have a take on someone, something just for the sake of having a take. But there are times when it's good to say, you know what, I really don't know, because you don't have your finger on the pulse of a situation. That's my view with Medvedev right now. Hmm. For a second, I thought you were talking about a certain Australian player you don't like to talk about, but okay, this was still Medvedev. (laughs) It applies to him too. It applies to him too. All right, so I think on that note, uh, this will be a short episode and we'll wrap this up. But uh, me and Matt urge you, uh, whoever has been listening, share these episodes with your friends. And if you've hit the subscribe button, uh, please drop in a review. And if you uh, just l- listening, you know, on the browser, go and hit subscribe on iTunes. That'll just help the podcast grow. I know we've changed homes a few times, but uh, uh, there's a lot of loyalty, I think, which we know exists out there. So just please, uh, if you can take a minute out uh, and just go and hit the subscribe button. Matt, you want to add something before we... Uh, wrap this up yeah just want just on that particular note you know that if you had listened to this podcast through our previous host at radio influence just a reminder that we've changed the specific rss feed uh and that's through red circle and we have new rss feeds at stitcher and also apple podcasts so the the url the link is different from what it was in the past so if you're having trouble finding us if you're having trouble Finding our RSS feed, get Sakib on Twitter at S-A-Q-I-B-A, get me on Twitter, M-Z-E-M as in Michael, E-K, or get either of us at our Twitter handle, accent underscore tennis. Um, we'll, we'll be happy to straighten that out with you. And I would also just say that, you know, subscribing and rating and reviewing, at least subscribing and giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts takes just a couple minutes, but wh- how that helps us is it, it improves our placement on web, various web pages so that we become more visible. We get listed higher on various rankings for sports and recreation podcasts or tennis podcasts or all of the above. Just taking those three, four, five minutes to subscribe and rate on Apple Podcasts, it means a lot. It means a lot to every podcaster. So just doing that is how you can contribute to tennis with an accent without having to give us money. If you can just do that, that's a great gift 
to Sakib and myself. Yeah, and once again, thanks for tuning into this podcast. We'll be back next week uh, with a Wimbledon special, and hopefully uh, that'll be an engaging listen. Uh, bye for now from Sakib and Matt.